Great Bays Tennis Podcast. I'm Steve Smith, episode 171. It's going to be a ton of fun. Joel Trucker, writer, author, speaker, consultant. I wrote the book, Jimmy Connors Saved My Life. Don't bet on it, but his late wife. Uh, California, Berkeley grad, award-winning um, historian, encyclopedic. I would say he's an intellectual who gets jockocracy to the highest level. Can cover the whole gamut, the pro game, instruction, instructors. Uh, Braden, great friend of Vic Braden's. Uh, he's an expert on brain typing. The, I have it on the desk here, the article. Made it all the way to the cover of Tennis Magazine on brain typing. Players past and present, you name it. On top of that, he's a, he's a funny guy. With um, I'll give him a call. And we'll get on it. Here we go. Joel Trucker. Hi, Steve. Joel, thanks for being a guest on the Great Base Tennis Podcast. Great to be here. We're happy to join you and your audience and talk about this game we love so much. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, I just went through uh, a little bit about your background. Um, tell us, uh, let's get going here. Uh, Tennis in Southern Cal in the 70s. I tell people I'm a product of the tennis uh, boom. Uh, I'm a t- product of the tiebreaker. If it wasn't for the tiebreaker, yep. story of circumstance, uh, like so many people of my age, um, I'm a little older than you are. Um, don't think I'd be in tennis if James Van Allen didn't uh, step up to the plate in 1970. But tell us you about your story. Go ahead. You wouldn't be in tennis if it wasn't for the tiebreaker. Really? <laughs> Well, well you t- yeah. You're, 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 are you telling me you're a terrible returner? <laughs> no, is that uh, tennis was put on TV? And, oh, I see. And okay, got just, it. Just so like, that helped tennis just, get on TV. Just like cool. everybody else, you know, the scores were twenty-two, twenty, and sixteen, fourteen. Sure. And, um, I think that is one of the biggest reasons that tennis boomed. And that's uh, a I, great call. So for me, it was the um, you know we moved to Los Angeles in nineteen seventy. We lived in other parts of the country and. Um, my mother started playing tennis because we're sunny, sunshine year round. And she started playing and, and took me to a, me and my brother to a park. And I got hooked. This is around 71, 72. And, and the game was booming. And I'm a, yeah, I'm a child of yellow balls. I realized I've never played a match with white balls. I've hit some with white balls, but I've never played a set. I never opened a can of balls, that old style that was like a sardine can. Right. I, the pop pop and the yellow ball and, and there were metal rackets and all of that. So, and, and LA then was a real, um, it still is in ways now, but even then, even more so it was then I went to Tony Traber's camp and he was at the camp every day and the CBS broadcaster and he lived near me. Uh, Jack Kramer lived in the area and he had the incredible best selling rackets and all these other ways he was involved in the game. And, uh, uh, Jimmy Connors was living in LA and practicing. So it was, a you know, being to grow up in Southern California, in LA in the 1970s around tennis is as if you were in country music and you grew up in Nashville. I mean, all sorts of big people. And so I was able to engage with the game at a fairly, I don't, high level, just involved level. People who really were engaged with the game. I mean, I had the Wimbledon champions in my zip code and UCLA was two miles away and saw great players there. And it was just, and the game was booming. It was on TV all the time. So it was, it was happening and it was cool. Tony Trabert, Cincinnati. Um, mm-hmm. he, he one time, 
the voice of American tennis, uh, covered all those matches. Yep. I was at a banquet one time. It was really cool. Was, he was asked a question, who's the greatest player of all time? And, you know, he mentioned several players, but he, he summed it up by saying, but in the end, my mother thinks I'm the greatest player of all time. Well, uh, that's what we have mothers for, right? Right. With, uh, tell us about, uh, Jack Kramer. What comes to your mind? You think of Jack Kramer. Bigger than life. Bigger than life. That logo, that crown logo on the racket that many of us, I think anyone over, I guess over 40 or maybe even 50 now, recalls that racket, the Jack Kramer autograph. And that crown that was the logo on that was kind of the Nike swoosh of its time. I mean, Jack Kramer was the man who lit the candle for open tennis throughout the 40s, 50s, into the 60s. There is no open tennis. It was for Jack Kramer in the traveling barnstormers tour. He was also a great player. So that means he was David Stern and Michael Jordan. Think about that. He was both. Wow. He's number one in the world and he was the promoter for the tour. So he might be arguably the most important person in the history of the sport. I'd say Jack Kramer, Billie Jean King. I mean, these are the people who took our sport to, to places that were unimaginable. No, I, you know, I spent so much time with, with Vic Braden. I know you did as well, but uh, Kramer was his go-to guy. Kramer was his, his mentor, his idol. You know, always with when you were Vic Braden, well, Vic Braden, one of the great coaches of all time, who we both do pretty well. You extensively, and I knew him pretty well too. And Vic worked for Jack's tour. I know Vic joked that uh, I think he said that half his job involved apologizing for things Pancho Gonzalez had done. Yeah, I've heard that, that was one of Vic's jokes. So uh, that those were quite some interesting days. Uh, and then what happened at Vic, the Kramer Club? Uh, that's an amazing story. Uh, it's actually in Vic's first book. It, Tennis for the Future came out in 77. He said, yeah, they knew under pressure, Gonzalez with this really strong continental grip on the forehand volley was going to go cross court. That was the reason I could uh, buy a golf course and build a tennis club. But the Kramer that's Club. That's what Kramer said? Yeah, it's in, it's, in, it's in the book. Uh, oh, that's funny. With, uh, I think it also helped that Jack Kramer could pretty much um, aim any surf he wanted to the guy's weaker backhand, hit that forehand down the line approach shot to the guy's weaker backhand hit volleys to the guy's weaker backhand, right? Yeah. Well, I think also his, his geometry teacher uh, helped him out so much. The, the Ro- Cliff Coach Roach, Cliff Roach at the, uh, the LA Tennis Club helped Kramer refine the center volley game. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so many things. Vic has that video um, uh, where he interviews Kramer, and Kramer said that, you know, and I, I use so much of that. There's a big difference between, you know, little kid tennis and big kid tennis and learning how to force and, um, in those days, yeah. In Jack, in the days until until the two hundred backhand changes everything, and even Jack couldn't quite see it. He called Ponce Segura's two hundred forehand the best shot he ever seen, and he knew it was from something that he had never seen before. And then, but as recently as nineteen seventy four, Jack was calling Connor's two hundred backhand an eccentric shot. He didn't quite see what the future was going to be with the game, and that's okay. It's hard to see that, but the two call it a forehand, call it a backhand. It totally changed the serve volley dynamic. Serving to a two-handed backhand is a whole different deal than serving to a one-handed backhand. No, it's great to hear that because I think most often you hear people say it's, the racket changed everything. But when I first started, well, it's first t- it's two-handed backhand. Yeah, when I first started playing, um, it, was, it, was, it was rare to see someone with a two-handed backhand. It was all one hand. When did you start playing? In 1970, 65, 68? When did you? Start well, um, I, you know. I was introduced to tennis in 1972 when oh, okay. I was going off to a prep school 
And my parents said, I got to, my father learned, learned what it's like on the other side of the tracks and I, in the Adirondack Mountains. I was a dishwasher at a camp and outside of my cabin were tennis courts, which up until that point in my life, I thought the tennis courts were for street hockey. And, you know, I was just fascinated. Um, you know, Vic said in his book that, you know, from the outside, tennis looks pretty good or it looks pretty easy. You know, you, you know, people can bun a tennis ball or excuse me, a ping pong ball back and forth. That doesn't mean they're competent, but you know, they can get a ping pong ball like, like uh pickleball today. They get more balls back, but uh, then I found out how difficult the game was but from the outside. Well, what, did defensive, say, tennis, what did Vic say? Not only is tennis hard, but people can see your legs. Say that again. That was one of Vic's things. Vic said, not only is tennis hard, but people can see your legs. Yeah, there's some great breaks. And then, lines. but the other thing, there's another line someone told me, it takes three years to become a crappy tennis player. I mean, it's, it's a hard, it's a skilled sport. I mean, think of the things, um, think of what it takes to learn how to serve properly. And I think, I suspect my informal survey tells me that if you take people who learn to play the game, they start the game past the age of 20, and they did not play baseball or football extensively, 80% of those people never learn to serve with a backhand grip. So they have a cap on the most important shot in the game. They yeah. never make that learning. And that, that's a major learning. I mean, I'm glad I, uh, you know, I taught myself that when I was 12. I learned to hit a spin serve, a lefty, and I learned to hit like a, a reasonable slice serve, but I know how to serve. But I don't know. It'd be a lot harder to pick up old when you're older. No, for sure. Um, yeah, we break it down to pizza position, pull down for the people to have a forehand grip and palm up to salute position, twist up. But that's mm-hmm. another, that's another thing that's changed too is uh, years ago, it wasn't fair for girls as far as sports, but I mean, everybody could throw all the, all the boys throw baseball, but not anymore. They don't play baseball so much. It's not as popular as it once was. Right. Olmeda, tell us a few things about Olmeda. Alex Olmeda, the um, uh, Alex Olmeda was a great player. He came from Peru. He single-handedly came here, ended up in a bus and came cross country and um, went to uh, Modesto uh, City College briefly, and then he he went to USC and became a great player there. He won the NCAA's twice. He's a great server, great volleyer. And 1958-1959, he was really the man at the late 58 who helped the U.S. win the Davis Cup. Hadn't, the U.S. hadn't won it in four years, and he was the hero. He had some big wins, and then he's in January 59, he wins the Australian Championships, and then wins Wimbledon. Beats Rod Laver in the finals. He's a tremendous player. He, then he, uh, after his poker ended in the 1960s, he, um, he taught for many years at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Probably no one taught more Oscar nomin- and Emmy nominees, Grammy nominees than Alex Almeida. Peruvian with, um, you know, today I think that the junior tennis players, you know, we talk about it all the time is years ago when I was a kid, there was a TV with three stations. Then PBS came along and uh, that's how, you know, Braden really got his start by doing the, the, the uh, tennis tip during the changeovers. But yeah, the appreciation of tennis history. Uh, I loved the late Bud Collins and listening to you uh, rattle off, you know, Olmeda's background. Well, I'll tell you a story. I'll tell you an origin story about me and tennis. And you mentioned these people like Jack Kramer and, and Tony Schwabert and Alex Olmeda, all who lived within five miles of where I live. So that's pretty special to grow up in an area where there's three Wimbledon champions within five miles of your house. And there are oodles of others. Um, 
Again, Connors is practicing in the area, so that's four. He's winning Wimbledon, and uh, lots of people, lots of excellent players around. Some people, people probably heard of like Mike Franks and John Douglas, and and these were top ten Americans there. Alan Fox. These are great players. Larry Nagler. Um, the origin story for me, and this will help propel our discussion further. I was a sports geek kid when I was nine, ten years old, and I played some pop Warner football, but I also liked reading about sports and reading like Sports Illustrated and the sporting news and magazines, and I devoured that stuff. So now I'm 12 years old in 1972, and I'm digging into tennis. So I'm starting to play, and I'm reading about it too. And I'm reading a copy of World Tennis Magazine or some book. I'm reading a book, World of Tennis, 1972. This is an annual book put out by a British publisher. And I turn to my older brother and I go, hey, tomorrow is Julie Heldman's birthday. Julie Heldman, one of the original nine, great woman player. And I say, tomorrow is Julie Heldman's birthday. And my brother, older me, gives me the kind of look that older brothers give younger brothers. And he goes, you know, if you play tennis a little more than you talked about it or read about it, you might be a good player one day. <laughs> and my joke is, and that has made all the difference. It's fine. I can play tennis all right. I'm a okay recreational four or five player, whatever. But I, you know, in a way, you know, we all, maybe sometimes we all have our faith in our destiny. And my destiny was to do yet even more or make a living, a living. How, much, how many four or five players also can play and make a living riding and being around tennis all the time? With uh, UCLA as well, um, just the players that went to UCLA. I mean, I remember... Um, you know, now all these years later, I've worked with people that have played at UCLA. Um, you know, we have a student who's there now. So, but I used to have the off factor, I, the off factor that is just awesome to just be on the UCLA campus. Um, it's amazing how many Olympic medals, but just tennis itself to, uh, um, I one time was at a match where McEnroe was playing Telsher because I, we were both there, Steve, April 78th. Okay. had match point. Elliot had match point. You, we were both there the same day, you and me. Why didn't we talk then? Yeah, with uh, I, I, when I first was with Vic, I lived in a van and worked as a volunteer. And then I went all over Southern California. And we we should have got together back then. We should have. We could have. Yeah, but that that was a great day. That's one of those great college matches. And uh, Calcher had match point, and he, he was supposed to approach down the middle, but he ended up like you know we tend to come to hit our approach at the open court. Gave Macro this angle, and Macro hit this great cross court backhand pass, and that turned the match around. Of course, yeah, and, incredible. And, uh, Macro just played the one year. How about Telcher? He, he played more than one year. Correct? He played the one. No, he just played that year also. He played that same year also, '78. He turned pro soon after also. You know, I w- did a workshop in Southern Cal, and uh, Telcher came to it, and I talked about. I said, "Well, let me use these two books," and one was. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell's The Story of Circumstance. And mm-hmm. with, um, if the one thing was, uh, and then the other was the talent coach, the, the, the uh, Daniel Coyle, the, the, the pocket of achievement, of success from uh, the Kramer Club. But it, it just worked out perfectly where they had Vic first and they had Landsdorp second. And then, so they had, they, well, a, and then they had, then they had Gene Austin working the desk. They had a player's lounge. Um, 
And it just it was amazing. It was- well, yeah, then you have people also like uh, Dennis Rizza and uh, other people. And uh, yeah, Peter Smith is there now. It's it's a great club. I mean, and that's all from the, that's all from, I think the, the vision of that club was really Vic Braden, the kind of the, the Vic is smart enough to know, let's put, let's make Jack part of it. Let's make it name after Jack. Let's name the club after this incredible player. Vic found the land and Vic is living in the South Bay at the time. That's one of the most, that's one of the iconic clubs. That's kind of a, a later stage club since it opens in the 60s, as opposed to these older clubs like the um, Los Angeles Tennis Club was a club I played for many years, the Berkeley Tennis Club that was founded in 1906. So, but all these clubs are part of the, the mix that's kind of laying the groundwork for the tennis school. And then Pete Fisher, there was other coaches in the area too. I know Pete Fisher, I've read where he, yeah, he took Sampras to, uh, was it Larry Easley? What was it? Larry Easley for the volleys. And there was uh, other teachers too, who Pete went. Yes. Yeah. Um, certainly, uh, California at that time, I, I would have to have a fact checker for this, but I think in the 1970s on the men's side, it was pretty safe bet that there were 70 uh, Americans in the Wimbledon draw, and most of them were had a connection to California. Well, they'd played there and they'd grown up there, but what I found very interesting, if you look through the 70s and 80s, the juniors were more de- far deeper in California, but the East Coast ones, who were good had the McEnroe's, the Mayors, Vita Scarlitis, Ricky Meyer, Michael Fishback, um, Peter Rennert, Peter Fleming. They, in proportion, there are a lot of them who did even better because, you know, I, I wonder sometimes, I've written stories about this, about some of the Californians, they worked so hard to get out of the section with each other that by the time they got to the pros, maybe they're a little worn out. And plus the game was changing in the 70s, the, the fast, Court, hard court sort of volley game that had been, that they'd been grown up with in the 60s and 70s. The rug was being pulled out from under them by everything from um, clay at the U.S. Open from 75 to 77 to the 200 backhand. You know the whole the whole dynamic of being a serve volley or the way Jack Kramer and Billie Jean King had learned it was changing thanks to people like Chris Everett and Borg and Connors. No, it's Tremendous. true. There's so many players. Um... Yeah, they weren't off- offensive off of that wing. I mean, there's a lot of returns that were floated, and if they were accurate. Well, but even if the they were great, I mean, Jack Kramer talked about Don Budge and Tony Traver had a great one-handed backhand, but a great one-handed backhand is still not going to be able to consistently threaten the serve volleyer to the extent that a two-hander can routinely. I mean, for example, forget the very best ones like a Connors two-hander or a Don Budge one-hander or a Tony Traver or in a board. But move down the rank. So in 1975, your number 10 to 15 player is a one-handed backhand like a Marty Reeson. But on the other hand, by 1995, it's a two-handed backhand like a Richie Renneberg. And that's a whole different return to field than, than prior. With, I think, also the East Coast, uh, certainly more play on clay, not only at the U.S. Open those three years, but in the juniors, especially in Florida, but then also to the cost of real estate. I know it's really increased here recently in Florida, but uh, a teaching pro like myself couldn't afford to say, okay, I'll have a place where 20 people can stay. Cost of real estate was just too crazy in Hmm. Southern Cal. So I do think that it became a little bit more international. People talk about the proximity to Europe. Um, But yeah, at one point, California, it 
my opinion, was uh, just heads and shoulders above, above any other place well, in the country. Well, they had the weather jump. There weren't as many indoor courts also. And, and that's a great point you also make about real estate is the game grew and things such as the Voluntary Academy for Coles. If you wanted to create, and, and, and traffic, just getting around. So if you wanted to create more of a centralized tennis environment, Florida was more, was more, was more viable than California. California still has a great many tennis players because it's different. So, so anyway. Joel, on the two-handed backhand, uh, you know, I'm always uh, hoping that there could be a, just a effort to have kids play serve and volley more at an early age, you know, so the, the art of serve and volley doubles doesn't go away. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think, you know, the court's 36 feet wide and you got a partner that's aggressive. We're always telling people that if you serve and volley, you should really only have to cover, you know, less than 18 feet if your partner is aggressive. Well, um, I think if, I think it should be, I think people learn to get, I'll, I'll tell you a story. There was a kid, a child at my club. He was 12 years old and he was getting pretty good. He was already getting better than sort of the four or five men like me. And now he's getting, he's playing, our club had some fairly, some ex-college players. He's playing well, but he was still playing doubles with us men like me. And he would serve and stay back and he would just wail forehand. And I said to his dad, I said, you know, when he plays doubles with us, he's got to serve and volley. He's got to build that skill now because if you don't, you're not quite comfortable with the net by the time you're 15, it's going to be a third language. It's going to take, you're not, you're going to be too invested in winning. You're going to have college recruiting. You're not going to be building that skill. So he needs to get comfortable with the net now when he's 12 and, and, and he's serving to me. And who, who do you think I am? Merritt Sacken? So he, the dad goes, well, he's playing the game of today. That's the modern game. He's playing today's game. And I bit my tongue because I want to say is, I don't want you learning the game of today. I want you learning the game of tomorrow because the game of tomorrow is going to beat the game of today. And the game of tomorrow, by the way, is the game of all eternity. All, all these people, everybody was swooning over Roger Federer for 20 years. Look at this guy and all the shots. But no one... Very few people had the willingness to broaden their array of shots to play like that, to do things, to hit. And, and I said to a parent, oh, God, he's so creative, he's so brilliant. So I said, I'm no genius, but I know how to play a rally and hit a slice backhand and a topspin backhand in the same rally. I, could, I know how to hit a drop shot approach, a drop shot approach shot. The saber is 100 years old. But to get back to Sir Volley, that 12-year-old was being done a disservice. He why wouldn't he? Or, or there was another 11 year old who said, good enough. He beats me. He beats me the way the smart all court the kind of grinding stuff. Why not have him play me by serving volley when he's 11, just to build the skill. But if you don't learn to build those skills when you're young and doubles is a great avenue to do it, you get too invested in your outcomes by the time you're 15, 16, and you're not going to want to do it much. And you're going to call it like, I know someone who, that's how they play from the baseline. And, and they said to me, oh, I guess I got to take more risk. I said, if you think of it as a risk and call it a risk, then you'll treat it like a risk and then you won't do it. You need to understand it as an investment. And it's, you need to give yourself, even when you lose the point, a 0.25 tax credit for doing it because now you're altering the, the ebb and flow of the, of, of the whole match. Because you know, now, now you've got the net in play and now you've got doubt and now you've got different parts of the court. Well, thank you for saying that. We have parents that listen to this. Um, I, I always have said, Oh, that, I know what I said. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to add one thing. When the father says to me, this is today's game. I did say to him this. I said, you know, cause I, he said, I, I don't know. This is, 
today's game. I, you know, he's playing today's game, not to certain volley. I go, let me tell you something. When I was 12 years old, I won the spelling bee and I was number three in fractions. Pretty good. But when I started struggling with grammar and algebra, my mommy didn't threaten to fire my teacher. Yes. Okay. And that's the world we're in now yeah. where parents are the these customers. And if a teacher says, okay, let's invest in some um, long-term playing for the next, you know, I want you to play two practice matches a month where you serve volley twice a game, whatever, something that's investing in tactics. Well, no, that's his UTR. Oh, his ranking, his ranking. Oh, we're getting, he won't, he won't get recruited or this or that or the scholarship. Oh, the way you say things, I mean, writing this down, third language, it's like learning a third, it's going to be like learning a third language or the saber, the attacking, the hundred years old. The saber, the saber, Maurice McLaughlin was running the saber in 1912. Chip charge, baby. Sandy Mayer's whole career was a saber. I, I joked with Paul Anacone, I said, Roger had the sneak attack by Roger. I said, Paul, you had the Oba, obvious attack by Anacone. <laughs> That's funny. With uh, the Mayer brothers, I one time asked George Basho was speaking, he's the old Roosevelt mm -hmm. yep. in the tennis teachers conference. And he was talking about the system that Dr. Mayer had. And I said, why did the players play? So the two brothers have a different style and Gene Mayer was there with them. And he said, Gene, why don't you answer that? And you know, he was not very humble, but he said, I was so good in the 12s. I could just entertain myself. And Billy Martin, who went on to have like one of the best junior careers ever, he, he said that he had beat Billy in a national final, love and love. And he just was, he just did, would entertain himself by hitting drop shots and top spin, top spin lobs. Um, but no, it's, I think just to know the history, history of uh, tennis. Alex Mayer was a brilliant coach and they were both brilliant, brilliant players. But I think maybe in a way this also takes us to a topic near and dear to our hearts, Steve, which is the brain typing and how people are hardwired. And you look at Gene and you look at Sandy. And these are very different minds, and these are very different views of the court. Um, Sandy, a certain kind of discipline. I mean, everybody has a, a discipline. Sandy, a very um, pattern-based, uh, you know, rep repetitive discipline. I mean, tremendous. What a what a player he was, particularly a volleyer. Oh, what a that's just fantastic. Wait, and Gene, a little bit more. Hmm? Just just touch upon John Nagel and. Your, your work with Vic and your first meeting with John and then uh, get back to Sandy. I guess Sandy was a J and uh, his younger brother was a P. That's a good call. I'd say that's a good call. I mean, I think, I think uh, you want to, you want might you want to hear about my first meeting with John Needunk? Yeah. Well, uh, I'm on, I talk, I was talking to my colleague and friend, Mary Carrillo and Mary said she'd been at a conference and she'd recently seen Vic talking about this whole concept of this brain typing thing and how people were wired and Vic told her who she was and Vic told her who he was. And, and so Mary says, well, you gotta, gotta check this guy out. So me being who I am and I'm an ENCP and the ENCPs are kind of intrepid. We'll call anyone. So, so right out of the blue, I called John Need and I go, I said, Oh, I heard about you from Vic Braden and Mary Carillo. And, and within five minutes, John said to me, well, let me tell you what type you are. And he pegged me completely right. He even said to me, he said, I wouldn't be surprised if you're left-handed, which I am. So where, who are you? What are you, Dan Warwick? Where did you come from? <laughs> and uh, 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 so we started talking, and I was just mesmerized by John and his ideas and the things he explained to me about how 
how Jimmy Connors, for all his expressiveness, is actually an introvert, and how Pete Stamford, as taciturn as he was, is actually an extrovert. And I, I dove into this. I, it, it helped a lot with parts of my marriage, even because my my wife was an INFJ, and uh, and all these things, and um, it helped me a lot with interviews, particularly not soon after I started doing this, I had a chance to interview Stamford, and I figured out the psychology of interviewing a fellow ENTP, which Pete was, and to let them have their space, and how you, and certain people, when you, like certain players, I would know that one of the first, the second questions should be about their family, to get them comfortable about that. I mean, very incredibly helpful for, for learning, it helped a lot with my with my tennis, I told I I know I know what works and what doesn't work. With my tennis, John explained to me. John Neednagel had never seen me hit a tennis ball, and he said to, and he explained to me how I won matches and how I lost matches. And it was it was you'd think he'd watch me play fifteen matches. Well, Vic's um, Vic's intellectual curiosity, um, you know, certainly he'd be so enthusiastic about. You know this project or that project, but one thing is that for years, well, well, I would say fifteen years anyway. In his travel bag, he he had John's book. I mean, he was fascinated by John's work. Oh, John's stuff is wonderful, and I talked about it with our good mutual friend uh, Andy Fitzell, who I just I emailed him today saying that we connected. And um, Andy and ENFP like Vic, and Andy and I would talk about these things. We watch things with players, and he uh, has certain things. We we spent time together for a few years at Indian Wells talking about how certain players were and it was just uh, just tremendous well the article that i mentioned before we came on to in an intro that uh, went all the way to tennis magazine the project you worked on with vic uh when you talk a little bit about that where you just players from the past players the current players and you know like, we just empty the bucket we put together a whole spreadsheet of these questions about who some famous war of these 16 types what made them what drills they should work on, what kind of doubles partner they should have, all these things that added, that kind of was like a whole topography of it. I mean, we did this, the article came out in 1998. It was one of the most satisfying things I've ever worked on. Yeah, I mean, you know, who to put in the deuce court, who to put in the ad court. Um, That's right. That's it. Who, to, who to drill, who's, how, whether you should, you're the type of player you should, you should drill at length or you should do things more game-based. I mean, this has tremendous implications for how you learn. One tip, uh, uh, Jim Courier, I have the same brain type, ENFJ, yes, as Courier, and the tip that you wrote uh, from, you quoted Vic, where it's, uh, they need to mellow their intensity. With, yeah, you guys, you guys get a little, you guys get a little, a little hot, don't you? The emotions, yeah. Uh, different, different, yeah, different, different than the ISTP, which is your exact opposite. Different than that, it's a different type of intensity. But yeah, you, you guys are your own worst critic. Well, yeah, back in the day with the tennis boom and, you know, getting, you know, spent a lot of time with Dennis Vandermeer as well and, you know, wearing a whistle. But it's, one thing, your job, I mean, even if you're not uh, an ENFJ and you're coaching 100 people at the same time, ran this program where you're training tennis teachers, um, you, know, you learn to blow the whistle and you know, get, it's, it's delegating and it's uh, cracking the whip a little bit. But yeah, I think that, you know, see, I think of Courier, I've heard Courier say, um, he can't believe the the person he was. I mean, he certainly is mellowed, you know, that he's, when he's on TV, it's not, not the same Jim Courier that was grinding. I worked the, with Jim play. at the first of, I worked with Jim at 2000, I worked with him at Tennis Channel, but back in 2000, right after he retired, I worked with him at the first 
the event table works on for TNC at Wimbledon. But, and he was tremendous. He's a great colleague because um, the intensity he generated when he was playing was a lot of himself and his desire to excel and hard work he put in. He was, as a colleague, he was exemplary. He was uh, a tremendous worker. A friend of mine, uh, his mother's name is Linda, I believe, right? Is it correct? And um, Yes, Linda Courier, yes. Had uh, her read uh, what needs... John Nagel said about Courier. It's amazing how people say that it's just spot on where. Um, oh, Linda read that thought that was uh, accurate. Yeah. With, uh, That's great. you know, it's like with uh, Vic asking uh, John McEnroe's mother, because, uh, you know, he's on TV, he's got a microphone and he's similar to Connors, you know, way he worked in audience or what have you Di- different, differently. Yes, but definitely people would think, like you said about Sampras being a extrovert and Connors being an introvert, but Mrs. McEnroe said, no, John is a flaming introvert. That's what she told Vic. Right. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a great tool. I, I know that so many major colleges and universities still use it for job placement well, but, and corporation and corporations. That's right. Yeah. Lots of places use all sorts of things. Yes. And then as Very you much. said, for, for helping uh, couples, I, you know, I talk to parents well, about it and I think opposites attract. And then what happens is the kids like, it's like the ping pong balls going back and forth, the kids in net, And then, then they, they work one parent against the other being a master manipulator. Well, mom likes this and dad doesn't like this. So I'll ask mom this question. Well, the opposites, I think there needs to be some commonality. My late wife was an INFJ. I was an ENTP and there's this whole way connected around language and ideas and intuitions. But she said to me once, she said, this is around the time we were learning this stuff. She goes, how can you call someone you've never met, who's never met you ever, and talk to them for 45 minutes? And I said to her, how can you watch a Pampers commercial and burst into tears? <laughs> and, and she said, touche. Yeah. And, and there's a whole connection. I've, I've read a lot about that connection between the ENTP and the INFJ. All of these types have the capacity for connection. It's just a question of how, how long the bridge needs to be. To, to make it happen. Tell, tell us a little bit about Connors. I was on the phone with you and Andy way back when we were talking about the Vic Braden Library, and I was just teasing, saying, uh, hey, I want to talk to you again, and uh, I think I know more about Connors than you do, which I was just, again, I was just teasing. Well, but, I don't know. That, I, I don't know if you can measure that, but what, yeah. what, tell me where you want to begin. Where do you want to, where do you want to begin, or where do you want to, what do you want to know? I mean, tell me what, what's of interest to you and, this, and your audience. Well, I think the parenting, I mean, Gloria, start with the Gloria and, and Gloria mom, one, mom one, mom genius. two. Two mom was the grandmother. One of Gloria Connors things that's rarely mentioned for all her compulsion, but she was very clear how long she wanted Jimmy to practice when he was young. She would rather he did 15 minutes of something and did it just right than spend 30, than spend a long time darling. So she made sure when he was young, always cut the practice short just when he's eager for more. And so that made him remit, that kept him eager. And I also saw to it that his practice sessions were never particularly long, 60 to 90 minutes, but they were hard and he brought all of his energy to it. And it reminded me of something he told me once. I interviewed him many times and he said, if you play every match, like it's the big match, when the big match comes, you're ready. So his thing was a certain type of honor and respect for the game and the preciousness of the time. And that was her and two mom instilling that in him, that sense of focus and urgency. 
that he brought whenever he played. And we all saw that. So that's, I think that's a real superpower that Connor's built. Bill. Oh, and then also too, she was so smart to, uh, what at 15 to take him to Pancho Seguro. What, what do you, that's right. What comes well, to your mind with want, Seguro? He, well, Gloria Connors and two moms taught him how to, how to keep the point going, which is the first thing we need to do. And he wins the national 16th in August 68, about a month before he turned 16. And she knows he needs, he needs how to end point. He needs someone else. And so it's Segura who's got a great shot from the right side with a two-handed forehand, which is like a Jimmy Flynn back end. And those two are one of the greatest player coaching combinations ever. And the way they created contemporary tennis. So, you know, eventually Connors becomes tennis's first rock star. But in the meantime, the real business was bringing him to the Beverly Hills Tennis Club, having him work with Poncho and having work in Poncho, teaching him not just how to keep the point going, but how to end it. And Poncho, I spent a lot of time with him. He put me through some of the drills that he did with Connors to build those skills, to build those skills. Like, how do we, how do we close off the court? How do we take advantage of a return? How do we see the patterns? And Connors did that superbly. How do we kind of vector our way through the rally to, to control the points and to, to punish short balls and to do all these things? So um, that's a, and, and right. And Gloria Connors had the vision and the awareness that her work, a lot of her work was done at that point. It's time to turn them over to someone else. I like the Jimmy Connors uh, drill where, you know, he plays practice sets and, 15.30, one serve, start the set from there. Dig himself out of the hole. And oh, out, out wait, play the so wait, so, so he, so he'd be, ser- so you start, you play a set and every point is 15, you start off at yeah, 15.30 with one serve? I, I, I'm not sure if it came, that came from Gloria or from uh, Pancho Segura, but I just knew that as a Connors drill that. Uh, I hadn't heard of that one. That's a, that's, that's an interesting one. That's Jim, a good one. Yeah, I think that's yeah a- Jim Lair, um, you know, Jimmy, they were at Sanibel Island uh, and Jim's school for mental toughness was based there. And, uh, you know, Jimmy didn't buy into, uh, you know, I think Larry, is, you know, he's a pillar with our, our curriculum. He's been great for tennis. Arthur Ashwin said, I think he's the most important person in tennis because of all the parents climbing the fence and what have you. But yeah, that's where I heard that from. And that I thought it came from Gloria, but regardless the Connors, it's a great drill. You got to get that That's first one drill, but first. It's, it's one drill. It's been, what's important with these drills. It's for example, is to not have it be the drill because you don't want to learn how to play every point. Like it's 15, 30. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You, you need to learn how to play some 40 love points you, for, for investment spending, not yeah, simply yeah. to win them. Yeah. We're always telling but, young 12 year olds, you know, you're up 40 love maths on your side, you take a risk, you know, and if you, at well, a very early well, age, hit a body serve and go forward. They won't have the angle. And then, like you said, uh, <laughs> if they don't start early adventuring up to the net. It's not a risk if you learn how to do it. It's not reckless if you own it. It's not a risk if you learn it. Build a skill. Yeah, no, I, That's what I would say. I, would say. I, would, I, I, I know what you mean. No, I, I stand corrected on that. That's where. Uh, that's why Welby Van Horn used to just ask people that he'd meet, you know, how do you develop a tennis mind? And just hearing you say that, you know, yeah, I don't need to call that a risk. It's an investment. I, I don't even I, know I what a risk is. is. Yeah. You know, risk, right. Because when we see things as risks, we don't want to do them justifiably. So we need to see them. Like, like I ask a question. You talk about 40 love. I'm a left-handed four or five player. I'll ask you this question. I'll put this to you, Steve. I'm serving in the first set to a right-hander. He's fairly good off both sides. It's the first set. And I'm, I'm left-handed. I got my four or five slicer. 
it's too all 40 love. Where should I serve? Well, we think that you can't put strategy in black and white because uh, of the strengths and no, weaknesses of your all opponent. 40 love. No, I told you the, the variety, he's, he's okay off both sides. He's not, there's nothing extraordinary. So it's either side. It's, it's say again, you're up 40 love. Two all, two all, two all, first set, 40 love, two all. Yeah, depending on the skill set of my opponents, I would go body and tell them to come in. I mean, I primarily work well, with development okay, players. I would, okay. I, okay. In lieu of, I'm left handed. Remember this. We're not, would you tell me you wouldn't, I'm left handed. You would tell me to go body? Well, you know, you know, I think most lefties, I would ask you, I don't want to, I'm not avoiding the answer to the question, but I think a lot of lefties are just, you know, they're trying to hook the ball with, they're trying to hit an ace with yep. a slice and they don't hit it in the body. Spot on. What, see, I like, that's right, this body, or even go, why don't I try to go right down the tee? Roscoe, just go for it. Not go for it, I don't like that term. Hit it big down the tee, or body, you're right, into the forehand body, because now some people who even played slam said to me, oh, you should go wide and just end the game. Hit the normal serve. I said, you know what? There are going to be plenty of wide slicers in the ad court, right? right. I'm going to hit that lots and lots of times. So why not? 40 love. Throw it down the tee. If I make it, that's pretty cool. If I miss it, I've let you know that I might hit it there. And down the road, that might help me buy some space. Otherwise, some doubt in your mind. Two all. Four all 40 love. I might not say that. Four all 40 love. I might say, get out of the game. Let's get out of here right now. Go with the girl. Hit the wide serve. Get out of here. Actually, uh, when you mentioned Roscoe, there's a boy here uh, from Florida, a young kid who's been taking some serve lessons from Roscoe. It's kind of cool. He said, said, no, you're too big in the back. Everything happens out front. But for me, you know, I'm emphatic about, you know, I mean, kids will play 100 points. Kids will play an entire weekend and not have one overhead attempt. And uh, I think that, you know, Big Braden would say, Steve, you don't want to die by your principles. So, I, you know, go body. Let's see it. Just go in and at least attempt to hit a volley. Um, oh, that's certain volley. Well, that's, I'm glad you mentioned it. I serve in volley a lot anyway, so I forgot to mention that. But I, if you're a base finder, I see your point. Body, serve in volley. That's a great call. And yeah. see, and then someone else said to me, though, not a world-class player, but someone who played college tennis as well. But if you lose that point, now it's 40-15. And then you lose the next point, 40-30. You got to fatten it down. I said, so now you're treating every point like it's 15-30. That's like being a football team and treating every down like it's 36 instead of second and one. Yeah, I mean, and, I was, you know, the quarterback throws the ball three times. Uh, three things happen and two of them are bad, but you still throw the football. Um, well, actually, but that's, that's Woody Hayes from the old uh, days of the three yards in a cloud of death era. Yeah, the problem now is the rule, not the problem, the deal now is that that was in the days when if you completed 50% of your passes, you were darn good. Now you complete 65. The rules have changed a lot, right? Well, I think also, I mean, I don't know that much about it, but Bill Walsh and the, the short down and out. and Yeah. Um, he yeah. Could, Bill, Walsh changed the, Bill Walsh changed the whole dynamic about that. He, what was his, turned, brain, what turned, was his brain type? He was in the, it's all very good. See, this is a setup in the NFJ. Oh my God! You were working for it the whole time, weren't you? No, no. But the ENFJ is that with then why? I mean, the coaching tree. Um, I always thought that he was a P and TP. I thought he was a planner. 
you know, I thought so too, but John Neenagel told me he was in the NFL. He, he just, you know, just from the outside, he just seemed like he was California cool. I did, did see him being the, uh, the Lombardi, the, you know, roaring like a lion. Well, Lombardi, I think, was in the NTJ, I believe, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, but, but to get, I want to get back to the serving point. I want to get back to this point okay. about playing points and the score. And the point I'm making is that people need to learn these things. And Pancho Segura, by the way, was a genius. And I know he taught a lot of that to Jimmy Connors about how you play to the score and the things you can do. And I talked to enough Connors opponents to know the ways that he would do things late at, at late stage of the match that hadn't happened the whole time. And so they, where'd that come from? And he would alter the DNA of the match. And Segura understood playing the score. Like Segura said, of course you two all 40 left. You serve down the tee. You're going to be hitting that wide one plenty of times. On the other hand, when you're late in a tiebreaker, I was playing a league match once. My partner and I are very late in a decisive tiebreaker. And now I'm serving the ad court. And my partner goes, why don't you surprise him and go down the tee? And I said, being the NTPIM, I said, surprise him. At this point, I'll tell him. Here it comes. Here comes the wide slicer right to your backhand. We've been out here for 90 minutes, buddy, and you haven't shown me anything new otherwise. So here it comes, all dressed in white. Here comes here comes the bride. Surf, surf yeah. plus one. That must drive you nuts. I, mean, yeah, I, yeah, I, I say that. It's like, I think a lot of kids, it's like they think they should play that all the time. I think 12-year-olds are arching their back and tossing the ball over their head. And they're, they're hitting some kick because the ball is going high over the net. And then they're running around all backhands and loading up with a extreme grip well, and trying to end the point. I find it, so it's shorthanded. It's what I find more annoying, I don't, at least these kids who learn it, are learning kick serve and learning, you know, inside out forehands with contemporary grip and topspin and shape. I find it kind of mind boggling when someone over 40 or 50 is thinking they're going to play that way. Like running around backhands takes a lot of energy. You better be, be you better hit a big forehand when you do that, huh? Yeah, and coming back to football, I mean, a, a Djokovic is somebody who's, you know, he's staying in the pocket. He's not putting himself out of position. Like staying so in many, the pocket, that's so, right. So many well, he players. has space on both sides. He's so good on both sides, right? Yeah. But I'm always telling you, yeah. that I'm in the developmental side, is that it, well, it's okay to run around your backhand, but first develop a backhand. You know, you don't, yes, you, don't yes. want to, you don't want to be hiding anything. Like, I can't hit a backhand. Yes. The, bra yes. the Bradenisms, um, uh, like... You, you think your forehand's great because you're comparing it to your backhand. But I think that a lot of kids don't realize that they love their forehand because they, with these Babylon rackets, are cracking a winner. It's like Welby Van Horn used to say, the worst thing that happened to you is hit a lucky shot. And you just kind of try to try keep hitting it again. Yeah, you think you're entitled to it. You think you're going to hit it again, um, um, again and again. I mean, it's just, yeah. I, I met Welby a couple of times. I wish I'd known him more. He sounds brilliant. Yeah, I, you know, just his body balance position. Now, Welby, I mean, I was fortunate enough to spend time with him when he's in his 90s um, at the nursing home. And, you know, he knew that he had made some mistakes. And I think that's what makes somebody really special. What were some of the mistakes he thought he made? Well, you know, when he taught, people were playing with a wooden racket. Three of the Grand Slams, the majors were on uh, grass. Right. And he, he would have younger players use an Eastern grip. Then if the championship grip, you know, the compositor Australian have them edge up towards a continental. Okay, and but he, that was then. That was then. That was yeah. then. But you know, because it was just go to the net, go to the net, go to the net. And then 
he was a huge fan of Federer because Federer was a guy who was, you know, as Willoughby would say, he was on balance when he was off balance. And, um, but like so many people in that era, you know, the penny on edge, the shake hands in the back, shake hands in the front, the 180 degree swing on a 20 degree court. Um, but yeah, the, the, basically the grip on the forehand side, not that Welby would have been one to say that he would have um, honored the extreme grips that we see, but uh, not to have people edge up towards a continental. But, you well, know, but it, that era, this is an era of the ball was bouncing. I, 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 and I'm glad... I'm glad I learned, I learned to play in 1972 in Southern California because I went to Tony Trevor's camp. He taught an Eastern forehand grip, so I, I learned that. But my point is probably, my grip probably gets closer to continental at times than it does to um, Western and, and shaping. They knew a lot less about swing-shaped patterns then. Some did, like Vic and Welby and people like Tom Stowe, we can talk about another time, and, and others. But there wasn't as much knowledge of that because the course was so low-bouncing and fast. I mean, I joke in, in California, the third forehand is the approach shot. Whatever you happen to be on the court. I mean, there, were, there weren't long rallies being played. People were serving volley on both serves, and that was considered the, the big boys game, right? Yeah, I know. I think the approach shot, we call it the anxiety shot that uh, yeah. people aren't playing, the approach, they aren't, they aren't playing the approach shot like they want to follow it up with a volley. It's just, they're just going for the $100 shot from the 10 cent position. But that's, well, that's more now because there's more of a contemporary forehand. Once upon a time, when the courts were faster and you were approaching the one hand backhand, you could just kind of hit the the kind of a chip charge and make your way in. Why do you think that, like something like brain typing or uh, like Bill Jacobson, he took the the scoring patterns of you know like a, a green light point when you're up by two or three more points. Um, with why don't you think that there's a better handle on it, or people aren't studying tennis teachers from the past? Wait, so what's the question? Why aren't people studying? Yeah, you know, in other words, uh, the, the project you and Vic put together, um, I mean, I think that should have become a great tool. The brain, the brain typing is a great tool. Oh, but see, I think here, here's, I'll, I'll give you the macro answer. People don't like studying things from the past because it forces them to study things from the past. People enjoy occupying the here and now so they can um, move now and into the, full, into the future making money. About the, the, the concept of reflection and looking um, back and forwards across time, that takes a lot of work. It's the same way, like when I hear teachers talk about the modern game, sure, they can just study what's right in front of us now and not have to see the ribbons and the textures that help them understand the connection between, let's say, um, Don Bush's um, backhand and Novak Djokovic's backhand. And, and I, but I don't think that's just true in tennis teaching. I think that's true in all realms of endeavor in all worlds. I know that I'll, I, it, I, it's reflected. That's why I'm a writer who makes a nice living, but it's different than if I was in, in finance looking and speculating on stock prices. I think it has to do with why people don't study history that much. It's, it's viewed as ancient instead of this circle of time that connects us. You know, as well, well put the, the, the re, you know, that expression, uh, history repeats itself. I think many times if you watch a match, not as far as the drama and how it ends out, but in the developmental and the grassroots stages, if you've seen the first 20 points, you've pretty much seen the match. We, as far well, as that's what, go ahead. yeah, that's true. Well, yeah, that's true. But, but that, but see, even that is in the present moment. So people, people don't, you know, people, and also people associate history. It's often taught poorly. It's 
it's often taught as memorization. And so it becomes desiccated and distant for people. It's not always taught with the flavor and texture that makes it come to life. So it seems like drudgery, like homework, like, oh, I got to memorize the names of the presidents and state capitals instead of seeing it come alive. And it takes an inspired kind of teacher to bring that to people, to have them see those connections, have them see those ideas. And a lot of people, not many people like studying those kind of things. I mean, the world, you know, the people, people don't read that many books. People don't read that many books. People don't study history. They'll watch the documentary sometimes, but they don't want to really, you know, read about Theodore Roosevelt or, or James Polk or, right? Or right. Jane Austen. But that's, that's where... Just, that's just where people are living. You know, say, for example, the Welby-Van Horn balance method. Uh, oh, you know, exactly. it's just something that stands the test of time, and it, I just think it should be a requirement for... Those people see, the te- minute, teaching in the elementary. Yeah, well, but how phase. is it? But how are people learn how to? How do people learn how to teach what they teach? They go to conferences, and mostly someone is showing them. This is how I'm teaching the contemporary forehand. Or, or I asked a teacher once. I remember asking like, this, "How do you teach the forehand volley?" And he showed me his stroking technique. I said, "I don't know how you hit it. I don't know how you hit the volley. That's how you teach it." And I think the teaching a lot of a lot of tennis instruction is filled with people who are excellent players. We say, here, this is how I hit the ball. Watch me. See? And that's one form of teaching, but it's not as comprehensive as it could be. Right. And, it's, not, and, it's not information. It's uh, not, well, not, it's, not it's, nuts and bolts. It's just visual. Well, it's a, it's a certain form of, of visual learning and see how I hit it. And I, and I think that that's why I'm very ambivalent about a lot of this internet instruction. I'm going to send you a video and you're going to, and you're going to look at my video and then you're going to give me in- input from a video instead of being with me every minute while I'm hitting it. You're going to do this distance learning. Or, or then I was at a teacher's conference and I heard, I said to a bunch of uh, guys, I said, you guys, you're all coaches? Really? When was the last time you got your student play a match? Your coach? You can Don't ever call yourself my coach unless you've watched me play. What, right. three matches? You watch me choke? You watch... John Newcomb says to me a great thing once I go to this fantasy camp, these ones, and I go, he says, uh, uh, be leery of taking too much input from someone who's never seen you win. Oh, that's great. Um, tell us about the fantasy camps. I know uh, we could wrap this up. We could talk to you forever. Um, have, you, have you been to quite a few of those fantasy camps? I've been to John Newcomb's tennis fantasy camp 25 times. Oh, John Lord. Newcomb and a gentleman named Stephen Party, also an ENFJ. Yeah. Stephen Party runs a great club out of Cincinnati called the Club at Harper's Point. And Steve, years ago, went to a baseball fantasy camp. He said, how do I do this for tennis? So he um, he figured it out, and he contacted Newcomb, and he wrestled up a bunch of legends like Roy Emerson and others, and um, on and on. It went, and this event started in 1988. It's been going for, this is I just came back from the 36th year of it. I've been 24, 25 times. There's also a mixed one in March that I've been to as well. And it's just fantastic. It's kind of like league tennis with Wimbledon champs coaching you. Is it always at the same venue? It's at the same venue. It's at Newcomb's Ranch in New Braunfels, Texas. Yeah. That's in between San Antonio and Austin. And uh, third week in October. And I've played, John Newcomb has probably watched me play at least 60 tennis matches. Not wow. always start to finish, but plenty. And the same, the same legends or... It varies. The legends have evolved over the years for aging and, and different things, but the core have remained a lot, and Newcomb has been at the core of it. But Roy Emerson and Fred Stolle, um, they weren't there this year, but 
Um, Rod Laver came several times and Rosewall, other people like the Jensen's and Ross Case and Ricky Leach and lots of people, lot, you know, so you, you plan these teams. I mean, I, I had a situation once, this is what I call the experience. I'm playing a match and at first someone we're late into it. We're in a, a decisive tie break and super tiebreaker. Laver's coaching him and Emerson's coaching me. Wow. And I'm thinking, wow, this is a few years ago. I said, at this point, only two men have won every single major twice or more. And right now, their eyes are on my tennis match. <laughs> Amazing. That is pretty cool. And they're coaching us. They're coaching us during the match. So that is, a, that is what I call a meta-tennis experience. That is one rich experience. As a rider, I mean, to, to, oh, and my teammates are watching. And his teammates are watching. So we got like 20, 25 people watching, which for a recreational player is about 30 more than I've ever played in front of. <laughs> and uh, then the social side of it too. I mean, I've always, I've had a, I had a oh, chance yeah. back in the day to hang out with Roy Emerson. When I was working for Vic, he was teaching at the John Wayne Tennis Club. He was working with uh, Chris, um, excuse me, Armitrage, Nastasi, and Billie Jean King. And Kim Whitmer wow. was the assistant pro. And you know, we would hit balls and, and one of those times where Vic is out of town and I'm going to go hang out at the John Wayne club and, and Billie Jean King. And she had her points, you know, we were just off to the side and she started yelling at us and she wanted some privacy. And Emerson told her, said, uh, Kim and Steve are friends of ours, friends of mine. Uh, if you, you apologize to them, uh, Billy or the lessons over and she came over and, you know, obviously the players have so much, so much stress and what have you, but, uh, Tell us an Emerson story. What comes to your mind if you had to just tell one Emerson story for the Yuck Yucks? Tremendous, tremendous, oh, pure class and grace when it comes to behavior. Roy Emerson personifies the Aussie code. And the one simple thing is if you're hurt, you don't play. If you play, you're not hurt. And there's no excuse for it at all. So I once did an event with... um. Roy Emerson and I months earlier I had played one of his campers at the fantasy camp I was trying to lose team and I'm Emerson I'm driving him to the event that I'm going to moderate and he's going to speak and uh, he says to me he says oh that last match you played at the camp it didn't look like you were uh, quite yourself and he knew I was a little um, depleted from some prior tennis I probably shouldn't have played but I played and he said so what was going on when you played I go I have too much respect for you and the game to say anything other than I got the crap beat out of me. Hmm. And that's how you talk to Roy Emerson. You don't say, well, I was this and I was that. There's no this or that when it comes to competing because anything to do that is actually to insult the game and your opponent. At the, and it, it's the uh, code of sportsmanship. John, John Wayne Tennis Club. Ross Case just masters. They had just won Wimbledon. And Roy's mm-hmm. son, it was Tony, correct? Anthony, Anthony, yeah. Anthony, he, um, it was just one set, but the chirping, the, the humor, the trash talking, uh, I remember watching that. I also, one time at the back of the Boca Raton Hotel and Garolaitis, you know, people knew him as a partier, but he worked so hard. Oh, he and, worked, he was like contemporary ammo. He worked, he worked like a dog. And he had, he had been playing tennis. I just knew I was, uh, Jimmy O'Brien was nice enough to just let me be in the right place at the right time, helping with the tournament. And, uh, it was one of those Bill Reardon uh, tournaments. Um, and Vitas lost in the first round, but he stayed and just practiced like all day. At the end of the day, I was the only person watching. It was the back of the Boca Hotel as he played a set with uh, Emerson. So they were playing at Boca West. So the hotel is, you know, 
10, 10 miles away and he's practicing again. Um, you know, I think the older players are all always good for one set. You know, it's, they just can't play. Oh, well, two, I'll, three, tell you, four, I'll tell you Roy Emerson's story. Here's a Roy Emerson. Roy Emerson is getting ready for Wimbledon some years and he was, he played the Queen's Club tournament. But there would be rain and it would be delayed and he wouldn't get enough practice time. So a couple of times he decided, you know, I'm not going to play that tournament. What I'm going to do, I'm going to practice indoors on the fast wood boards, which are even faster than grass. And I'm going to get a, a player, another player, there was, I think it was Ronnie Barnes or Lenny Schloss or some other players. Say, all right, mate, let's you and I practice. We'll practice every day. We'll play six sets. We'll play six sets to get ready for playing five. And that's what they would do. Play six sets. Lenny Schloss, he was, and that, he was a guest on our podcast at Village and King Eye Coach. What a great guy. Yes. What is uh, Roy player. Emerson's brain type? I think he's an ESTJ. ESTJ. Yeah, I, mean, I think he's, I think he's, I think he's an ESTJ. I think so. You think? Well, you know, that Aussie humor, you know, he's just, I mean, like ESFP, oh, yeah, I mean, inter- inter- entertainer, you know, get on the piano and drink some but, beers. But, but and, you know, but Roy Young's also supremely disciplined. Yeah. I know people won't get this immediately, but when Novak tied or broke Roy's record, I wrote an art of, of Australian Open Championships because Roy had won six, and I think Novak had, you know, he's now won 10, but when he won his six or seven, I wrote an article explaining how Roy and Novak were very similar in their approaches, even though Roy was a serve volleyer. Roy was, you know, people associate serve volley tennis with like this swashbuckling, risk-taking, kind of like that. No, in those days, it was house money. And Roy Emerson, just as Novak is so disciplined from the baseline, Roy Emerson was so disciplined from the net. Get your first serve in, serve your share of the body, make your first volley, you know, just very, Emerson was kind of a grinding version of a servant volleyer, kind of like Patrick Rafter was. I, I heard him once say that uh, the reason he was so fit, you know, the Aussies being so honest, he goes, I had lousy technique, I had to be fit. But uh, everybody, they all, but each, each of the Aussies has their self deprecating reason for why they had their own superpowers. And, but Roy, he also knew that's something you can control is your fitness and your attitude. Like, uh, Maverick Palova said to me once, he goes, um, he goes, she goes, uh, in tennis, there are only two things you can control, your toss and your attitude. Yeah. And Roy's attitude is just a first rate for competition, for triumph and disaster and balance of mind. You know, don't get too up, don't get too down. Just go about your business, get in lots of first serves and on and on. Yeah. Just, um, I think sometimes today uh, players actually they're getting too much attention. Uh, they don't even play enough sets. Um, you know, there a, a lot of kids. Are, oh, the practice set has the practice set. I mean, I don't know how you talk about this with the juniors you work with, Steve. But uh, I was talking to a junior once at my club, and he was fourteen or fifteen. And I said to him, and, and my club, the Brooklyn Tennis Club, plenty of court time, plenty of people to play with. It was the middle of summer, and I said, the, these last two weeks in August, these how many fourteen days, how many practice sets have you played? Five. I go five. All I all I ever became was a reasonable hack, and at that time I would have played twenty five, thirty, and I wish I'd played more. I mean, it's not unreasonable to play two sets a day when you're fourteen years old in the summer. Well, you're two like sets. you're like Bud Collins saying you're a hack. I mean, Bud Collins. I one time had to go pick up his typewriter, and I was fortunate enough to. Uh, it was in Stowe, Vermont, and I came back, and like you would know, he was playing barefoot. Um, but he was a really good tennis player. I think he won a mixed, didn't he win a national title? He won the title? national indoor mix with, uh, with Janet, Janet Hopps when he was like in 61. Yeah. 
But one thing that one yeah, thing is one thing has gone away is a veteran versus youth match. I always ask who who, 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 the day. who, yeah, who, who wins the the toad. You know, Vic would say the toad. The the, the guy my age who's got a big floppy hat to hide from the sun and little pot belly and band on their elbow and or the hotshot junior with the matching shoes and bag and headband and it's those, a, it's those all, matches. It all depends. Yeah, go on. I was just saying those matches. Unfortunately, they don't happen anymore. Well, that's because the practices have died. And also, I think, like, we, I played some of those at the Berkeley Tennis Club. The, the, the young juniors are less at one place, and they're playing at other places, and they're going off playing ITF events. They're not as, they're not as club and sectional bound as they used to be. Yeah, those things were fun. I played several of those when I was uh, in my 30s and 40s. Yeah. Although I played one, and this is a line, I forget if I told it to Vic, if he told it to me. I played a young woman. She was like a very good 14 and under player. And we played one of those at Berkeley Tennis Club. And she beat me in a third set tie break. It was a long match. And she, she just completely exposed the uh, weaknesses of my forehand. And anyway, so I lost. And the next day, someone goes, I don't know how I'd feel about um, losing to a 14-year-old girl. And I go, the ball doesn't know how old you are or what gender you are. Yeah. And I greatly enjoyed that experience and she and I played several more times, but I think people, you know, older people, younger people, and then younger people, whether they want to play someone who's going to drop shot them and all this. I, I like, I had many fine experiences playing juniors. Well, the girls, girls have it tough because the boys, the Macho Man Ego, the boys don't want to play the girls. And then young girls, I mean, younger players don't want to play older players. So you got to, you can't be a tennis snob. You got to play anybody and everybody. I think. Yeah. Well, you should, you got to, you got to beat everybody. I think money comes into it too, where uh, kids can be programmed out. It's like, you know, we don't have ladders anymore. We don't have backboards anymore. Right. I mean, right. Um, I think the NTRP too, it's been a great business model and there are a lot of positives, but uh, you, yeah, you said, you know, you used to have to say in your section, if you wanted to play national, they had 25s, 35s, 45s. And yeah, I think the youth versus veteran matches. And I know Wayne Bryan, uh, you know, can you, you know, who can you play when you walk around the block, who you know, you get on your bicycle, go a little further. Who can you play? Just find people. Oh well, yeah, to but play. that's Wayne. That's act local. But and, and you know, but Wayne, by the way, to get back to Vic Braden, the Kramer Club. Wayne grew up in Hawthorne, and he went to call Vic Braden. He was like the Wolfman Jack, and the Kramer Club was all the music was coming out of back in the in the early mid sixties. And uh, yeah, but that that attitude, you know, there's a whole different atmosphere around these day academies that kids and their families go to, and they're they're working out, they're clinicking, they're not, they need to play more practice sets. Yeah. I think and you can't just go from a workout to an academy. One of our guests, Dave Anderson, I love his theme. Uh, how, do, how do we improve uh, tennis, American tennis, tennis in general is, uh, he says, back to the future. There's things about the past that uh, we should go back to. Hey, I told someone to the Berkeley Tennis Club, they said, we need a junior program. We need a junior program. I said, you want a junior program? It's the club directory. Here's your junior program. It's the club directory. Start making phone calls. I'll play them. I'll play your son. Have him call me. Well, they say Bud Collins. Uh, I, Ed Weiss, uh, I talked to him, and uh, I told him I was going to be chatting with you, and uh, he, he went to one of those fantasy camps. And I played Ed Weiss. Ed Weiss is an excellent player. Very nice, flat, penetrating stroke, he as said, I recall. Yeah, he said uh, lefty, crafty, good player. And we, as we talked about earlier, uh, he said he thought you were 5-0, but you don't think you're 5-0 anymore. You think you're slowing down. No, no, that's, that's kind. He's gracious. I, I don't, yeah, that, maybe that was like, you know, that, 
five oh with that one brief shining moment. I don't you know a while ago. Not now. I'm sixty three years old. If you're a five oh over sixty now or even over fifty, you're you're one of the better age group players in the country. Ed was uh sophomore. He was part of a national championship team and that's another thing I tire of is kids going D one, D one, D one. It's just play. It doesn't matter. Don't you don't have to look for any label, you don't have to go to national, national, national. It's just play. And you're right. It's how, how many sets and monitor that? And I like the idea that play up and play down. Um, well, there are maybe, maybe there aren't any um, ups and downs. Maybe they're just opponents. Yeah. That's, it's who, who true. You learn from. And, yeah, you say so many smart things. Uh, I think uh, I've said this before, and you're proving it loud and clear that uh, um, I would say the, your writing skills improve your speaking skills and your speaking skills improve your writing skills. You certainly have a command, uh, with, uh, I, I think of you as a, an intellectual has uh, such a high level of understanding of jackocracy. Um, <laughs> jackocracy. That's the Howard Cosell. Howard Cosell. Yeah. If I, well, that's a different thing. Yeah. That's a different thing. The jackocracy. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, um, yeah. The, the Howard Cosell, the theme, I, I never, I never played the game. And um, yeah, but I did. Yeah, see, that's the thing I have, which is like I joke. If you saw the movie Almost Famous, did you ever see that movie with Cameron Crowe? No, no. He writes about music, but I'm like a he's right. He's a character writing for Rolling Stone magazine. And I'm like Cameron Crowe, except I have a garage band. So the neat thing for me is that while I the chance to write about it and play it is a really fun intersection that I get to occupy. And I feel very fortunate to have had that. I mean, if somebody told me when I was 14, you know, losing my first eight matches in the SoCal 14 unders and half my whole junior career, happy to win a round in a junior tournament and two was like going to heaven. Um, that eventually I was going to be at a stage where John Newcomb will have watched me play dozens of tennis matches and talk to me about my tennis game and see how that weaves in with my writing. That's a charmed life, my friend. That is one lucky life. Don't you have a breakdown? Uh, I know Jimmy Connors, you call him a rock star, but don't you, uh, you know, like one one guy's the Beatles and one guy's the Rolling Stones. Yes. Connors is Elvis. Connors was Tennis's first rock star. He was the first one. And just like Elvis, he was kind of from the, uh, you know, middle. Connors was from the boondocks of Illinois. And Elvis is from, you know, country boy. And Connors was the first rock star. And then, and so that makes him Elvis. And then soon enough at Wimbledon, there was Borg mania. So I think Borg was kind of the Beatle. You know, the young, fresh sound. And remember all those, yeah. The girls chasing Borg at, at Wimbledon. That was like something out of Hard Day's Night. And then a few years later, it comes, uh, comes uh, a little more of a snarl, but a little more of an ironic tone to it. That's Macano. He's a stone. Oh, he's, great. He's, he's, like, he's like Mick and Keith. So when Elvis died, uh, Jimmy Connors said, there's only a few of us left. So I think... Uh, but they, you know, Segura said to Jimmy Connors, he said, the king is dead. And Segura and Connors says, what a shame. There are only a few, some oh, of us okay. left. And I know Connors liked Elvis. Yeah. I know Connors liked Elvis. You know, I consider myself a, st a student of tennis, but I was definitely a Connors fan. Just what he brought, um, he was just electric. Uh, your friend Mary oh, no Carello question. calls him my, what, the most, not the best player, perhaps, but the most important player. He certainly He's was not part, the he, only one. He was so He's not the part, only said that. Yeah, so the tennis boom, I think, when Connors, he was like Muhammad Ali. I mean, he certainly... Yeah, uh, he was. He was like Muhammad Ali, Joe Namath, and Pete Rose all in one. And, and here's the other thing about Connors that I'll say this too. Everything tennis wants to be now, everything tennis tries to be now, everything tennis hopes to be now has its roots in Jimmy Connors. The emotion, the connecting with the crowd, the passion in play, 
the bringing the stadium alive, all the thing. Whenever whenever we hear about a great thing happening like that, like Alcaraz and his passion for competing, Nadal and his you know play what play for your life thing, all of that has its roots in Jimmy Connors. Before Jimmy Connors, they're all great players too, but I would consider them they were crooners. They were more like Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra, and they were great, but they were much less expressive. And Connors, who I wrote my first book about him, Jimmy Connors Saved My Life, was a, was the first guy to really break through the wall and connect with people, for better or worse. It's like he's in health. CBS, uh, I think it was CBS, he was playing uh, the George and Alex Metrovelli, and they, uh, they told Jimmy, uh, hey, don't wear red. You know, tennis is broken out of the all-white, and Jimmy shows up with red socks, red wristbands, red shirt, and says, no one tells Jimmy what to wear. Or no one tells me well, what to wear. Well, there you go. Well, no, Connors, he was the, uh, I gave a speech la- uh, recently at Forest Hills at the Westside Tennis Club marking its 100th anniversary of the stadium, which also hosted music, a lot of great musicians over the years at, at the Westside Tennis Club. So my speech was called um, Moments, uh, Music, Moments, and Magic. And I made this connection. I said, there are two guys from UCLA named Jimbo who lit that place on fire, Jim Morrison and Jimmy Connors. And Jimmy Connors turned tennis from an acoustic garden party into an electric carnival. And no one did that. He was, he was the guy. And that's, that's a little, that's less, we, we don't think about that. Now. Just like, you know, just like there came a point in the 70s where people weren't talking about Elvis as much. The Beatles knew about Elvis. Yeah, they, they went, sure knew about him. They went to hang out with him. They loved Elvis. And and Connors Connors started that all, both with not just with the antics, but the tennis itself, the two handed backhand, the pressing all court style. But about Jimmy with his serve, I know he he did spend some time with Vic and getting Ariel. And I mean, how did a guy like that do so well with not having? Uh, you know, he improved his That's, serve, but it was serve was all you know for lefty. It was always interesting how his serve he tossed it behind him and not in front. It was kind of you know, it's kind of rare. You know, most lefties don't need to generate that kind of twisting kick that he had. And um, most lefties toss it more to their left. They get the slice. They come around it. Um, he, Yeah, he improved his serve, no question. And he certainly improved it a lot when he won Wimbledon the second time in 1982. But it was always a work in front. Well, it just showed you, A, how well he backed it up, how good his ground strokes were. And you were there minute by minute with the, the run he had. Uh, it was at 91. Uh, the U.S. Open. I was not at the 1991 U.S. Open. I was at the, I was at the 1990 U.S. Open, and I was with Connors on the opening day that year. He had pulled out of the tournament at the last minute, but he was there and he practiced that day. And I got to spend a good part of that day with him. At the end of the day, as we were leaving, he looked back at the stadium. He says, "This is 1990. If I ever get back there, that place is going to rock and roll." Oh, I did He's it. True to his word. Wow. Yeah, uh, no, it's, it's great to talk to you. I could talk to you forever. I think Thank we you, could t- take topics um, with uh, lots of topics. I mean, with uh, yeah, you're just spot on with so many things. And I mean, I need to go back and listen to this for our listeners and take notes. Um, I think that I mean, the, the term risk is not to call it a risk. I mean, communication is key, and obviously, you know, that's what you you're, you're a teacher, Steve. Yeah, communication. It's what it comes down to is meaning and words. Yeah, right? but, like, but you've given, the ball in front. But you, yeah. but there's so many lessons within what you said, and that's where people go. Okay, I got to go back and take the time, and um, you know, just some of the 
obviously you're, you're known for putting great sentences together and you've certainly done it with this in podcast and I, I will go back Thank myself you. and, and, uh, we, we have a fairly substantial growing network of coaches. Um, I started training coaches formally in 81. And basically, um, by 26, I had been trained by Braden, Vandermeer, and Van Horn. But we have other pillars like Lair. And, uh, you got Vic, Vandermeer, Van Horn. You V for victory. You yeah. got the three Vs. The three Vs we, you admired most. Well, yeah. well, V, Vic, and Vandermeer's ghost. I mean, well, yeah, these guys we, are great. Yeah, we call Vic the Christmas tree and then the ornaments, but it's not really fair to, uh, you know, just single one person out. So he definitely Braden's a cornerstone because of the science. But, um, yeah, that, that's, uh, you know, I think what you said about history, uh, to come back and it's, but, but tennis teachers, I think it's too easy. I tease the doctors and say, yeah, it's much more difficult to become a tennis teacher than a doctor. I mean, we have to, we have to take two days and a couple hundred dollars to get certified, but then, um, less than half the people I've told now are not even certified and YouTube education is not research. And, um, yeah, I, I love what you said about YouTube, uh, tennis teaching gurus that instead of teaching remotely, get out there on the court. You know, I don't think you can, you know, your 12 year old students, not your client. It's not, a, not a consultancy. It's, uh, let, let's get, let's get out there and watch you play and what you said about playing matches. But, well, uh, I'm surprised there aren't more teachers who say to their students, hey, instead of me just feeding you balls and working on stroke production, get your buddy and let me watch you two play and figure that out. I mean, I, I did that for a couple of players last year. Earlier this year, I watched the play and I took notes and I, and, I, and I wrote it up and we talked about it. I mean, and let's look at how the match plays out. No, and I think that's you, just yeah. counting up your errors. I think you have to counting up your errors. But, hmm? No, sorry to interrupt. You have to have the best of both. I think that's one thing about McEnroe. I hear you know what they say about his school, you know, participants that he really believes you got to play. I mean, you've you've got you. Well, he well he should know. Well, he he uh, he he proved it himself. I mean, you know, you know, everybody knows, and he's the first one to say it that he didn't like to uh, he didn't like to drill. He didn't like to practice. But boy, did he know how to play points. Yeah, Carlos Goff. He said one of our podcasts. He's a young coach, and it was at Port Washington with Hopman and McEnroe sits on the bench because they're making him hit overhead after overhead. And he says, "He goes, this is a stupid drill." And Goffey says, "He's a young coach." He says, "Why?" He goes, "You don't hit four or five overheads in a row." He goes, May- "Maybe two. So he just had that um, well, that, that right. genius about him figuring things out. Well, but it is important to know this is where some of the stuff from brain typing. And, and not just brain type, but even the person themselves, how they go about building their game and the things they need to do. What's interesting, though, with Macro, that he's, he's right about that, of course. I've learned, though, that Macro, when he would practice before matches, he would, he would make, he would do his strokes and things, but he made sure he took plenty of overheads because he knew that shot was all important for his net, his net rushing attack. Yeah. The volleys were going to be there, manage the ground strokes, get to net. And make sure that overhead is ready to go. And boy, did he have a great overhead. Yeah, I've heard been told years ago that maybe they still do the short amount of time they give for the warm up um, at Wimbledon. Uh, to get in and, uh, yeah, knock off some, or not knock off, but, you know, it's not a matter of exchanging ground stroke, just get up there and, and work in the right. forecourt. Right. So good. But thanks well, again, Joel. Yeah. You're welcome, Steve. I'll follow up and now we'll talk more. The, uh, I'll send you my notes on the lessons I've taken uh, from this chat. 
but our, I know our listeners would be, be grateful. And we're, what we're trying to do is, uh, you know, we give out um, free educational content and we're just trying to help tennis teaching, help tennis players. So again, thanks for, thanks for your great. time. Well, great to be with you, Steve. Thank you so much. Yeah, all okay. the best. All right. Good night. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Bye. Listeners. Wow. 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 Big time, big time guest around big time tennis, big time players. But I think most importantly, a big time tennis mind. Um, my question asking, uh, well, well, Van Horn used to ask people, how do you develop a tennis mind? Well, one was that uh, it would be passion and it's just, you know, obviously studying, observing and being around it. But, um, yeah, just, we'll, uh, put it in the write up to, uh, there's so many articles that you can go back that are archived that you can read that, uh, Joel Trucker has written on the desk here. I have a copy of his book, Jimmy Connor saved my life. Um, he, uh, wrote a book about his late wife as well. And this is a, um, uh, it's a photocopy, but this is the, the brain typing article that, um, he worked on with Vic. It's, it's amazing. Uh, it's the article itself, but then it's a, a quiz. Um, you take the quiz. We use this all the time. It's, again, it's, it's not scientifically validated, but it, and it doesn't put anybody in a box. It's like with, and again, Andy Fitzell, we, we, together uh, have a podcast uh, dedicated to brain typing with those who go back. I mean, the younger players, younger people in the game would not necessarily know much about say Stefan, Stefan, Stefan Edberg or John McEnroe, but both the same, same brain type. Um, but it has examples of uh, say an ESFP, there's 16 brain types. And um, here it's um Say, you know, Lindsay Davenport or Gigi Fernandez, who did so well playing doubles. And it's, um, yeah, there's a, there's columns, you know, pros who play like you. So you go through the, the, the short questionnaire, your tennis style, why you win, uh, why you lose. Um, we should get this on Facebook. Um, I mean, this should be, mandatory for people teaching the game to really get a grasp, a handle on this. What help you need to improve based on your brain type, the best devil's partners for you. And then uh, a tip from Vic Braden, but it's, uh, as, as he said, um, with, um, one of the, you know, highlight of his career was working on that project. Also having the book, I read, uh, just doing a little research that this book, and this is very thorough, uh, um, tennis for dummies that, uh, that Joel was a technical, technical advisor for this. But, um, anyway, Joel Trucker, fantastic tennis mind. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Joel. And thank you for listening. Um, adios amigos. Adios.